I would rather see her lovely step and the motion of light on her face than chariots of Lydians or ranks of foot soldiers in arms. I'm Jay, and for this episode of Let's Read Something Gay Today, we're reading the works of Sappho. For our inaugural episode, I'm going to be discussing the work of the person the English terms sapphic and lesbian originate from, and that's Sappho. The translated fragment you just heard is from Anne Carson's translation called If Not Winter, Fragments of Sappho. These lines come from fragment 16 on page 29, and this work is one of the longer fragments we have remaining from Sappho's work. The work of hers that we have remaining largely are poems without official title, and except for one single poem, are all missing lines. The reason for this is because a lot of her work has either been destroyed or gotten lost along the way, even though she was said to have been a prolific writer in her time and was even mythologized to further immortalize her name. And the way her work has been lost varies widely. There are a lot of possible reasons for different works to have gone missing or been destroyed, but we'll get to that in a little bit. Let's start back with who was Sappho? Sappho was a lyric poet born on the island of Lesbos in Greece in approximately 630 to 610 BCE. She's referred to sometimes as the Tenth Muse or the Poetess and spent most of her life in the town of Mytilene. Much of her lines of poetry were composed with the intention of being performed to music, and some were perhaps choral in nature as the translations vary between plural and singular when referring to the speaker. Even in her lifetime, she was incredibly revered for her talent, and it's estimated that while we only have approximately 650 lines of her work today, she composed somewhere around 10,000. Today, we know her best for her love poems. She also wrote some of her work in a specific style of poetry, which is now named after her, the sapphic meter or sapphic stanza, which is a four-line stanza consisting of three lesser sapphic lines followed by an adonic. Despite this, there isn't a lot known about her actual life. She had two or possibly three brothers whose names aren't accurately recorded, a possible daughter named Clace, and maybe even a husband. Though in interpretations, the name given for him is Kirkulus of Andros, which can also be translated literally to mean penis of man. And the origins of the information are likely from a comic poet fabricated as a joke. She was a player of the lyre and was considered an incredibly talented musician. Some accounts report later in life her family was exiled, and while it isn't 100% known why, it appears they had political ties that may have been the cause. While there are just as many interpretations of her life from secondary and tertiary sources as there are for her work, a lot of what we actually know about Sappho is speculative. There are a lot of accounts that refer to her as a teacher or the go-to person in her community for new works of music and new writing, while other accounts argue that it's maybe not even likely that she knew how to read or write down any of her work herself. One thing in particular I saw a few times is that Sappho was a part of a cult to Aphrodite, and that her only fully recovered poem was work done to recite out loud in a setting of other members. But I had a lot of trouble finding out where that story first started. A lot of accounts I could find also depicted this group as something called a theasos, which depicts a group of women with an educational and religious background, going back to the reference of her as a teacher. Very commonly, theasos is actually used in reference to the followers of Dionysus, but in this case, Sappho's 
group were said to primarily follow Aphrodite. The association with Aphrodite in particular comes from the references in Sappho's own poetry. On top of the one completed poem we'll take a look at coming up that names Aphrodite directly, a lot of Sappho's poetry includes imagery primarily associated with rituals for Aphrodite, such as flowers and garlands or altars with incense. She's also a mythologized figure, because while we have no true cause of her death, she supposedly died throwing herself off of a cliff due to her love for the ferryman Phaon. In Greek mythology, Phaon was a ferryman originally old and considered very ugly, gifted an ointment by Aphrodite to make him beautiful due to his kindness to her while she was disguised. In this myth, it is said that he was desired by many after this encounter, and that he rejected Sappho after laying with her, causing her to throw herself off of a cliff and die by drowning. This is almost certainly false, and likely made up by a comic poet in the same fashion as the name of her might-be husband, so we have no official cause of death for her. It is, however, another tie to Aphrodite, albeit indirectly. Sappho died in approximately 570 BCE, making her anywhere between her 40s and 60s at the time of her death. While some of her work has resurfaced as recently as 2014, and hopefully more will eventually make it into the public eye, a lot of what remains are only fragments of full poems. Some of this is just due to age. If you were to look up images of some of these surviving fragments, you can see that some of the surviving work is entirely on shreds of material that is not fully preserved with time. So, some of the fragments we have are due to missing material, and even more are due to writing that is too illegible to verify. Then, of course, are the remaining lines that we have never seen any trace of. Supposedly, Sappho had nine books of lyric poetry kept in the Library of Alexandria and were burned when it did during the rule of Julius Caesar. However, not all of her work was only kept in the library. Some of what we have today is from papyrus found after being used as cartonage panels for the process of bookbinding in Egypt. It is sometimes said that Christians burned her work for containing female homoerotic themes, but there isn't a ton of evidence to back this up, so it's possible but not necessarily true. The most recent of Sappho's work to be recovered, among it a new lengthy installment dubbed The Brothers Poem, in 2014 came with a lot of controversy in the speculation that the origin of them was part of a legally dubious agreement to sell archaeological artifacts privately. The collector behind that discovery hasn't been named publicly, and the line of exactly how they came across this artifact isn't entirely known, but there is a lot of speculation with ties to a particular American company, so I suggest if you're interested, it's worth looking at. It's one of many examples of private selling of ancient artifacts without due diligence or regard for the ethics of handling works like that, and so it's frustratingly entirely possible that more lines just exist in some private collection and won't ever see the light of day, unless it's on the whim of whoever currently owns the work. More of her work will hopefully be discovered someday, either through private collections becoming public or from new artifacts being found, but we're just gonna have to wait and see on that front. Finally, some of Sappho's work appears not to have survived because of her dialect. Sappho's work was written originally in the Aeolic Greek dialect, and within a few centuries, the most common dialect in Greece was Koine, or Attic dialect, and consequently, her work was considered archaic and at times difficult to decipher. Because of this, it's possible that some of her existing work was simply not copied from papyrus to the parchment that was becoming more common at the time. I sort of find this funny and sad at the same time because it reminds me a bit of reactions to other famous works and works like Shakespeare's work, the way we 
currently work to both translate it into hundreds of languages, but also provide updated interpretations based on current language rules and trends. There's a sort of melancholy feeling knowing that it's entirely possible that her work being lost to time just happened, without any significant decision made to destroy it or keep it. In terms of what we have remaining of her work, as much as the language used is archaic, it has facets more modern than other work of the same age. While other Greek poets at the time traditionally spoke to the values of a group or ideologies, one of the ways that Sappho stands out is the subject matter of her lines are often deeply personal. Going back to fragment 16, the subject of this particular poem is named Anictoria, who is gone. Anictoria was a possible lover of Sappho's, and in any case, the way Sappho references her here is incredibly amorous. This poem actually begins with a preamel to have the speaker argue the value of love. This preamel presents its first three options all as armies which men say are the most beautiful thing on the black earth. The speaker then disagrees, stating that it is what you love. From there, they go on to use Helen of Troy as an example of this. Helen, said to be the most beautiful woman in existence at the time, in this is sailing to Troy. Not for her children nor her dear parents had she a thought, no. And the speaker emphasizes that Helen leaves behind everything in the pursuit of love. So if Helen, the most beautiful woman, finds that what she wants to do is pursue love, is that not also the most beautiful thing? This, of course, is in direct opposition to the telling of the tale in Homer's epic poem, The Iliad, where Helen leaving her husband and family behind to pursue Paris in Troy is painted as a selfish act. The next lines are missing, so we don't know in full what bridges the gap between Helen and Anictoria, the real subject, but the speaker, after referencing what Helen did for love, says, Reminded me now of Anictoria, who is gone. I would rather see her lovely step and the motion of light on her face than chariots of Lydians or ranks of foot soldiers in arms. From here, the remainder of the poem is largely missing, save a few words, but the intent seems clear. Just as Helen is gone from her husband and her family, Anictoria is gone from the speaker, perhaps in search for something beautiful for herself, or perhaps in death. When the speaker is comparing Helen to Anictoria, she is putting herself in the shoes of Helen's husband, Menelaus, or one of Helen's many admirers. In response to Helen leaving to pursue her own desire, Menelaus goes to war, as told in the Iliad. Going back to the first few lines, the men the speaker referenced believe the important thing, the beautiful thing, is what is done through war, or the armies that are formed, but the speaker puts emphasis on Helen and also puts the emphasis of what is beautiful onto what is being fought for, not just the act of fighting. And the speaker would rather see that beautiful thing, that love, than any sort of army, naming the lines of Lydian soldiers. The speaker loves Anictoria, and while men may say the most beautiful thing is an army, the speaker only wants to see Anictoria, and that person they love is the most beautiful thing imaginable, even opposed to the consensus of men or the group. I like to think that a lot of people would relate to this sentiment, the idea that your only desire in a given moment is to see someone you care about again once they're gone, whether that's in death or simply distance. The way that Sappho uses the value of the larger concept of love to precisely get down to this feeling, and the way the general consensus of what is beautiful is juxtaposed with the eye of the poem and what they find beautiful, shows an individual desire that could fit right in with a lot of modern poetry. This Anictoria is just one of several friends and possible lovers of Sappho mentioned in her work. Sappho often refers to friends and family by name when they appear in her poetry, making the work feel more personal and honest. The openness and familiarity of her words give Sappho the reputation of being straightforward and striking. Let's also look at one of her most famous works, the only poem of hers that we know of to exist in its entirety, Fragment 1. 
It is also often referred to as the Ode to Aphrodite or Hymn to Aphrodite. Like a few other of Sappho's fragments, this poem works as a prayer, asking Aphrodite for help. It begins, Deathless Aphrodite of the spangled mind, child of Zeus, who twists lures, I beg you, do not break with hard pains, O lady, my heart. The first several stanzas of this poem begin as a plea for Aphrodite to come to the aid of the speaker, which is revealed in line 20 to be Sappho herself, and not to break her heart. The first three stanzas into the fourth begin the ode pleading for and imagining Aphrodite. The speaker begins, Come here if ever before you caught my voice far off, and listening left your father's golden house and came. It's a very... Are you there, God? It's me, Margaret moment. As the speaker is essentially saying, Aphrodite, if you can hear me, if you've ever heard my voice asking for your help, please come and help now. The speaker imagines Aphrodite carried by quick sparrows over the black earth to her. Then, Aphrodite speaks back. Whom should I persuade, now again, to lead you back into her love? Who, O Sappho, is wronging you? While some of Sappho's work could be set up to be performed as a group or made with a group in mind, this one has a confirmation in it that the I is Sappho when she refers to herself by name. When Sappho pleads for Aphrodite not to break her heart, Aphrodite instead responds with who is wronging Sappho, who is actually breaking her heart. It is sometimes interpreted that when Aphrodite speaks to Sappho, she is doing so playfully, almost as a parent gently chiding a child. At this point in the poem, now again is a phrase that's been repeated three times, all with Aphrodite's question to Sappho in mind. With this almost playful conversation in mind, it almost seems like Aphrodite is asking, what do you need help with now, Sappho? Which one is it this time? Sappho, as the speaker, knows she's called upon Aphrodite before, maybe even for the same person, and Aphrodite seems to be humoring her in her requests. This continues with the next lines, where we get an idea of who is, in fact, wronging Sappho. If she please, soon she will pursue. If she refuses gifts, rather she will give them. And later, Sappho responds, Loose me from hard care, and all my heart longs to accomplish, accomplish. Sappho is in love, and while interpretations sometimes differ, the modern consensus is that she's in love with a woman, given the feminine pronouns that modern translators have picked up on in the work. So when Sappho is calling on Aphrodite, she's calling on her for help with the case of unrequited love. What her heart wants to accomplish is making that love requited. Aphrodite in turn assures her, continuing in that humoring fashion, telling Sappho, if she flees, soon she will pursue. Aphrodite is assuring Sappho, she'll come back, she'll come back, she'll bring gifts, it'll all be okay. Circling back to the usage of now again, Sappho has called for this assurance in the past and likely will again. And every time, maybe as a comfort or in that same cyclical way as now again, Aphrodite will return. Sappho ends the poem with one last request. Be my ally. Because of that now again, Aphrodite will now again and any time Sappho prays for her help. In other translations of this poem, Aphrodite isn't assuring Sappho that the lover will return, but rather assuring her the lover will know the same pain of an unrequited love. Aphrodite also says to Sappho, if she does not love, soon she will love, even unwilling. This could refer to two things. First, in mythology, Aphrodite often imposed desires onto people with some kind of trickery or insurmountable will. Because she decided it, a human felt desire. 
In these lines, she's either telling Sappho that the lover will return and love her whether she likes it or not, or that this person will love another and that person will treat her the same way she's treated Sappho, unwilling. So Aphrodite is either helping Sappho get together with this love or promising a sort of revenge. Either way, Sappho seems perfectly happy with that outcome, ending on that hopeful note encouraging Aphrodite to be her ally. This poem is one of few longer fragments that are believed to have Sappho as the speaker. While several of her verses are aimed toward women, some of them are believed to be in honor of a wedding or on behalf of another person or group, so the subject being feminine is not always indicative of personal feelings, but in this case we get a pretty good idea that Sappho was a woman who loved another woman. This translation wasn't always the most popular version, though. In many of Sappho's works, there is often a debate on what exactly a word might indicate. Sometimes it's because the characters are degraded or partially illegible. For example, in this fragment, though Anne Carson's translation refers to Aphrodite's spangled mind, another interpretation that comes up is throne, due to the two words looking incredibly similar in the native text. In other instances, the translations are changed purposefully. Though in the native tongue, the word used to describe the lover is accepted as feminine, it was originally changed to depict a masculine lover until 1935 where Theodore Burke suggested the use of a feminine pronoun, though even that was not fully accepted until decades later. This translation does, however, make more sense in relation to the next fragment we'll discuss, fragment 31. Fragment 31 is a fragment with no resolution to the arc of the poem, as the first four stanzas are intact and there is at least one more stanza to the poem, if not more, but whatever follows the stanzas we have is gone, save for one line. This is also a popular fragment to dissect when discussing Sappho's love for other women, although it never explicitly names the speaker as Sappho or by any other name. The reason people tend to gravitate toward the idea that this poem is more personal, with Sappho as the speaker as we saw in fragment 1, is that while Sappho was a performer, having constructed poems and performances for group events like weddings as a chorus accompanied by music, the consistent use of I and me in this poem as opposed to a plural counterpart indicates that it wasn't such a piece. While it is possible that Sappho constructed this poem with the intent of it being from another person's perspective, it is equally likely that it is another poem where she was meant to be the speaker. Given that Sappho often uses names of friends, family, and herself in her work, it's possible that if any other version of this poem surfaces with any or all of the missing stanzas, we might know for sure. So the first stanza starts with the speaker describing an unnamed man, then showing that he is not the real interest of the poem by pivoting to the unnamed person sitting across from him. The poem just describes the man in a kind light, stating that he seems to me equal to gods, that man, whoever he is, who opposite you sits and listens close to your sweet speaking. While the speaker describes this man as equal to gods, they also immediately move on to the real subject, the person who sits across from him. In the same way that fragment 16 started with what some men say, only to move on from there and reveal the true subject of the poem, this fragment starts with a compliment to this man sitting across from the subject, then immediately downplays his importance both by calling him only as whoever he is, but by then stating that his relationship to godliness is because he sits across from the subject while they speak. It is not at all certain, but there is a single line fragment that may serve as an alternate opening to this poem. Fragment 165 is only the line, this man seems to himself. If this were an alternate start to fragment 31, as opposed to a part of a completely different poem, just that small change from he seems to me to he seems to himself also makes a huge difference. 
In the version included in 31 itself, the speaker is commending the man, and we'll see later why, but the second possible version seems to have a tinge of jealousy in it, changing the meaning from saying that that man is a god to not show if he feels the way that I, the speaker, do, or that man is a god in his privilege to sit next to you, the subject, to saying, who does this guy think he is? A god? But why is this unnamed man like a god for sitting with the subject? It seems to be because the speaker has a crush on the subject. Returning to the line, to your sweet speaking, the poem continues, and lovely laugh. Oh, it puts the heart in my chest on wings, for when I look at you even a moment, no speaking is left in me. No. Tongue breaks, and thin fire is racing under skin, and in eyes no sight, and drumming fills ears, and cold sweat holds me, and shaking grips me all, greener than grass I am, and dead. Or almost, I seem to me. The speaker first describes the subject's sweet speaking and lovely laughter, then moves on finally to their own reaction, which describes all of the common physical sensations of being attracted to someone. They've got blood rushing to their face and in their ears, seeing and hearing the person has taken their breath away, they're getting cold sweats and heated skin, most likely from blushing, their heart being a flutter, and even sick and feeling dead. The he in the poem is then supposed to be equal to God's in that he appears to be talking to the subject of the poem poem normally, without any sense of these feelings, or at least without showing them. Alternatively, the man in the poem could be like a god in that he is privileged enough to sit by the subject, who is causing this reaction to the speaker seemingly without even knowing them. We also know from this that the nervousness of the speaker isn't from negative association because of the way that they're describing the subject specifically as lovely and sweet. A later Roman poet, Catullus, actually wrote a response or adaptation to this poem in a poem known as Catullus 51. He lived hundreds of years after Sappho, but was a known admirer of her work. Catalyst 51 is both a translation and transformation of Sappho's Fragment 31, in that Catalyst interprets the poem slightly differently and veers off in the fourth stanza, where Sappho describes the speakers as greener than grass, sick and almost dead, indulging slightly in the speaker's own perception of their feelings. Catalyst instead uses the fourth stanza to name himself as the speaker and admonish himself for indulging in leisure. While Sappho's fragment seems to imply that the speaker is present for the conversation being held, Catalyst interprets it as eavesdropping on a conversation and dismisses his actions and the speaker as an act of selfish leisure. Catalyst changes the tension of the poem this way from being focused on awe of the man speaking to the subject and the physical sensations of either love or lust, to instead being about self-control and the presence of the subject. Catalyst also names the subject as Lesbia, a name he used quite often in his works, which appears to be a stand-in name for a real person or muse he regularly wrote about, and also a reference, of course, to Sappho. This response also shows a few interesting things. First is that because we know that Sappho's Fragment 31 is at least one more stanza by the first line we do have, it is likely because Catalyst also only wrote four stanzas that even at that time the remaining lines were lost. Second, poetic expectation, as interpreted by Catalyst shows that at least he wanted the poem to take a turn back to the speaker. Sappho's own poem has no true ending due to its missing lines, though the final lines we have, but all is to be dared because even a person of poverty, implies that the speaker will take some kind of action toward the subject, daring past their feeling. So it is interesting that instead of interpreting this and attempting to see that stanza to completion, Catalyst instead uses the fact that the poem ends only on the speaker's emotions and instead criticizes his own inaction 
in as a speaker. This may be a reflection of his real actions in a similar situation, or an attempt to finish the poem using only the action and inaction present in Sappho's fragment. Aside from these fragments, there are many pieces of imagery, even in the works we have almost nothing of, that carry queer interpretation. Some of that imagery is originated from Sappho. Violets, for example, are today one of the several pieces of flower imagery we universally know to have a meaning within the queer community, and the reason violets have a place among other flowers like green carnations or pansies is because of the way Sappho used them in the same space as her descriptions of women. First, fragment 21, we have Sing to us the one with violets in her lap. Then, in fragment 30, we see a different version of a very similar poem, reading, Girls, all night long, might sing of the love between you and the bride, with violets in her lap. Fragment 94, or Sappho's Confession, which begins with, I simply want to be dead, continues down the page, Beautiful times we had, for many crowns of violets and roses, at my side you put on, and many woven garlands made of flowers around your soft throat. In this fragment, it appears the speaker, who again is named in the poem as Sappho, is bidding farewell to a girl who claims she is leaving only against her will. Instead, Sappho tells her to rejoice, and lists off some of the many times they had as a reminder of their close she lists the making of garlands and crowns, naming the violet and rose by name, and later the use of sweet oils, which brings up this feeling of being luxurious together. Finally, Sappho says, And on a saft bed, delicate, you would let loose your longing. This is probably the closest to a direct reference of a sexual act, and it can be further explored when looking at other translations. Another popular translation of the line writes it as, And on soft beds, delicate, you quenched your desire. So, in this instance, Sappho's use of violets in the description of the subject of the poem, paired with her description of the subject as having a soft throat, and then this description of longing or desire on a bed, creates the imagery to the reader that these two women are intimately involved, and as the subject is leaving, they are leaving behind this relationship. Still, in Fragment 103, Sappho uses violets in relation to a marriage, with the speaker stating, The bride with beautiful feet, child of Kronos with violets in her lap, setting aside anger, the other with violets in her lap. The first part of these lines is missing, so none of them portray a completed thought or image, but this would make the second time violets have been named in relation to a marriage, which marks them as an image Sappho uses to depict love or a relationship. This also has a lot to do with the symbolism of the violet at that time. Violets were used both in funeral settings and in settings that were meant to showcase purity at that point in ancient Greece. One famous myth involving Artemis showed her turning one of her nymphs into a violet to escape the advances of Apollo. Because we have a decent idea that Sappho composed for events including weddings, we can see in these fragments that what she's using violets to represent are the themes of maidenhood and purity, but also the joining of two people in love. When we look back at fragment 94, it also puts that imagery in a new context. So, do we know for certain Sappho's sexuality? There's always some debate open about whether she is truly describing her own thoughts and feelings in her work, or simply composing for a group, but given what we've just covered, I think the long-standing interpretation of Sappho as a lesbian, both in origin and sensuality, is a fairly safe bet to make. So, I believe we've successfully read something gay today. If you enjoyed this episode, you can find more episodes wherever you get your podcasts, or consider following the official Instagram or Twitter at LRSGTPod. Before I go, though, I'll leave you with some lines I really loved when reading through this Anne Carson translation. Arrows shook my mind like a mountain wind falling on oak trees. Evening, you gather back all that dazzling dawn has put asunder. Spangled is the earth with her crowns. Thank you! Thank you!